Guardian Unlimited. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Islamophonic, your weekly dose of news and views on Muslim life. We're the first Muslim podcast from a national newspaper. But am I a master of my destiny or am I a puppet on a string? You decide. For our Wahhabis, there is more music on the show, so fingers at the ready with your volume controls. Today, in an alcohol-themed special, we whoop it up with the young and restless in Manchester's Curry Mile. We've some practical fatwas to help you make better choices in everyday life. And joining me in the studio is Imam Haroon Rashid Patel, one of the teams setting up a new phone service with Drugsline. This new telephone crisis service will cater specifically for the needs of the Jewish and Muslim communities. Assalamu alaikum, Imam. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Regardless of how much you know about Islam, or even how observant you are, you know that consuming alcohol is haram. But 21% of Muslims interviewed recently for a survey said they'd had a drink. But why? Is it boredom, curiosity or peer pressure? I went to Manchester, where young Muslims have become infamous for celebrating Eid by getting absolutely trolled. A'udhu billahi minash rajim Bismillahir rahmanir rahim <laughs> this is verse number 93 from chapter 5. Talk about three balls of champagne left in the car and about two litres of body left. Yeah. Oh, you who believe in toxicants and gambling, dedication of stones and divination by arrows are an abomination of Satan's handiwork. So leave such abomination that you may prosper. Manchester's Curry Mile, along with thousands of young Muslims who are celebrating Eid by cruising around in their pimped-up rides, shouting the odds and getting arrested for public order offences. While most of the Muslims here are obeying the laws of Islam and the UK, others are getting drunk. Are you drinking tonight? Of course no. we are. What are you drinking? Bacardi. Why are you drinking? Because we're away from home, we're just enjoying ourselves. <laughs> Hello, Asalaamu Alaikum. This is Imam Misbahi speaking from Manchester Central Mosque. Islam is completely and totally against involvement in any form or in any shape with the business of alcohol. Islam outrightly and completely forbids alcohol usage. Who do you drink with? Do you drink with other Muslims? You see all these lads, they're all Muslims, they're all good lads as well. The way they celebrate is just drive up and down the road, flashing off their dad's flashy cars, obviously consuming a lot of alcohol in the cars, not in the restaurants and takeaways. My name is Shabir Mughal, and uh, I'm one of the chief executive members of Russian Traders Association, and I'm also a proprietor of one of the restaurants called Spicy Hut. What impact do the Eid celebrations have on businesses along the Curry Mile? Most of the boys who come in from small towns and everything don't go in the restaurant and spend any money. Plus they block the traffic so our English clientele can't come through. The restaurants would lose approximately, say about more than £100,000 easily in a night. Because being 54 restaurants in this stretch, uh, the big losers will be the restaurants. 
1188 John O'Hare, Superintendent, Manchester Metropolitan Division. Well, the policing operations put on place to enable the local Muslim community to enjoy the Eid celebrations, to come down to Rosham, to enjoy themselves, take part in it safely. The police officers are there to facilitate that and to allow that to happen. What kind of um, disorder or antisocial behaviour are you talking about? Can you give me some examples? Tonight, for example, we're what, 10 o'clock at night and we've already had five arrests for public order offences, which in the main have been people acting in a disorderly manner by shouting, swearing either at each other or towards police officers. South Manchester has a significant Muslim population. How much do you know about Islam and the Muslim community? I think we're really lucky within the Manchester Metropolitan Division that we have real strong ties with the Muslim community in particular and the local businesses and we you know we, we work with them as an advisory capacity to let us know the context to the celebrations and the, the sort of background, the history, the importance uh, and the relevance to particularly the Eid celebrations. What kind of debate goes on um, between all the restaurants about whether alcohol should be served or not? What are the dilemmas for you as businessmen and women? That's a big dilemma between the restaurants and the, their families as well. The reason they have to sell alcohol is because their clientele, 99%, is English clientele who consume alcohol, and Pakistani clientele or Indian clientele is 5 to 10%. There are a few restaurants who did try to stop selling alcohol, and they went bankrupt. Would you serve alcohol to Muslims in your restaurant? If they ask for it, uh, we would serve them alcohol, but we would not try to push alcohol towards them, only if they ask for it. The first thing they come in inside and ask you, is the food halal? And we say yes. And then after that, they ask for a couple of pints of lager. And we don't understand that logic about it. That So it's, it's a very fine line we have to travel on. Selling alcohol is also forbidden in Islam. That's a problem for many of the businesses um, in the area, perhaps. They, have, they are restaurants, they sell alcohol, or maybe they allow customers to bring alcohol into the premises. Yes, that's true. But as a Muslim, we are not allowed to sell. I know that many Muslims are selling, but talking from the viewpoint of the Quran and the teachings of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, it is completely forbidden. So alcohol is expressly forbidden in Islam. What happens, or what does Islam say will happen to Muslims who either consume alcohol or who sell it? Uh, Muslims very strongly believe in the hereafter, that there is another life. And we know that if we break the laws of the Creator, Allah or God, we shall be punished for that. So anybody who is involved in alcohol will face its uh, punishment in the next life. Does the Quran say what the punishment will be? That is only and completely for Allah to decide what he and how he will punish. Will it be a severe punishment? It will be a very severe punishment, yes. Look, eat here, we're pissed. I'm not wasted. I don't want to be wasted. I want to have a nice 2007, but I want to forget 2006 because it was shit. It's basically my personal choice. I'm different from any other individual. Thanks to Imam Misbahi from Manchester Central Mosque, Shabir Mughal from the Rush Home Traders Association, Superintendent John O'Hare from Greater Manchester Police and some proper charmers who shall remain nameless. 
still with me in the studio for our Islamophonic Boo special is Imam Patel. Imam, what's your reaction to what you've just heard? Um, interesting. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, not shocking. All right. Um, I mean, I, I think if you go to any major city, you would near enough find the same scene, but probably on a different level. For example, if you look at Forest Gate, Green Street, you look at South Hall, you probably find the same kind of atmosphere there as well. I think that's the first part to what I've heard so far. I think for the restaurant people, I think there's a question there. You know, he's, he said that they ask us... If the food if is halal, halal, then they'll order alcohol. Alcohol. <clears throat> but then does the same question come to them? Were you serving halal meat, but at the same time you're serving something which is forbidden as well? Yeah. So, you know, there's a dilemma there, I think... Before asking other people the questions, I think the restaurant owners have to ask themselves the question. I think it's a, I think it's a real problem. He did say that he knew, he knew restaurant owners whose families wouldn't eat in those restaurants because there was alcohol on the premises. So, I, th- I think that that's a dilemma for the restaurant people. I mean, before you go into a trade, you actually think about why you're going into the trade, and then it's up to you to make the decision. My job isn't to condemn a person. Um, Islam never condemns a person for the for what they do. It condemns the action, okay. and then that's important to understand. If he thinks he's doing right or she thinks that they're doing right, actually they need to justify to the creator, not to me. Okay, all right. Now, Adrian Murphy is someone else who has experiences similar to yours about helping Muslims who drink. Adrian works for New Roots, a charity providing counselling and advice to Black and Asians with drink or drug problems get calls from Muslims from all different backgrounds, Muslims who uh, practice, Muslims who are from just from a heritage background, young people, concerned parents. And what kind of things do they tell you when they do start to talk about their problems? From a practical level, they don't have that much confidence in, in treatment. They, they're not sure where treatment exists, what it is, there's a lack of awareness. Do they talk about how they feel because they drink? It's a, a massive issue for them and it often compromises their core beliefs. Also, a major theme is family and how the family perceive them and how other people in the community might perceive them. What sort of advice do you give them? We will let them know what their, all their options are. Another important piece of advice is that for anybody who's got dependency problems, early intervention is the best way forward. Very often because of shame and stigma, People leave it longer than usual than mainstream culture would leave it to um, to seek help. What's the attitude of mosques and communities towards your work? In general, there's a lot of influential people quite happy that we exist as an organisation and they will give us quite a lot of support. There are other individuals who don't want to work with us and deny that there's any major issues with Muslims and alcohol use. Do you think perhaps that if they accept that there is a problem, they're somehow condoning this behaviour? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a part of it, definitely. The way we think, if, if it's accepted, then the problem can be addressed. What pressures do they face? We're living in a culture where alcohol and alcohol use is at epidemic levels, really, in its, in its misuse. And there's much more integration of young Muslims in mainstream culture, so there's quite a lot of peer pressure involved. There's also more traditional Muslims, maybe not born in this country or come from from immigration background and arrived in the 60s, who are probably lonely and maybe have lost people and children have gone away, so, you know, they, they, they might turn to alcohol. 
What other support or advice is out there for Muslims who drink? I, I think the more important way to put it is that from the very start it's very difficult for people from a Muslim background to bring this subject up in, in the traditional places that they frequent. I mean, I guess it's more of a guess that it tends to be brought up with non-Muslims that they may have a problem or they'll maybe confined in close friends who they trust. Imam Patel, does that sound familiar, what Adrian was saying? Um, I mean, what's the scale of the problem from your own experiences? Not drinking experiences, I have to say, but working with Muslims who drink. <laughs> I mean, you can't really measure the problem. I mean, you can get a glimpse of a picture depending on what your work is around. I mean, most of the things that he's mentioned, um, we've heard that before. And that's why I think we felt that we needed to do something in Redbridge for our communities. But I think what we're looking at is there's a lot of gaps. I mean, one of the things he mentioned was confidence in treatment. You know, you, you go to any Muslim parent, the majority of them will not be aware what's available in the local borough. Then they said about stigma, denial. I mean, that's very common. You know, who would want to say, actually, my child does have a problem? Yeah, or and even if, my child drinks. Yeah, but anything. Yeah. You know, you, you, no one wants to actually admit it. And you will get sometimes times where the parents may actually turn around and make the wrong decision, which encourages the child to do even more now. So if they're just taking alcohol, so then now they're going to say, well, actually, it's all right, my parents have accepted it. With alcohol, drugs will eventually come in. Yeah. Because it goes in hand in hand, and usually the environment that they will be in when they're drinking will have some kind of a way of getting the drugs in as well. So, I mean, it is a problem, but I think it's very easy to highlight problems. What are the solutions? And I think that's what Muslims or any community, I think a lot of the communities are facing the same problems as us. They're having problems with the young or there may be people who came into this country earlier on because of integration or mixing or peer pressure. For whatever reasons, they've got involved in alcohol or drugs, or etc. It's very easy to highlight the problems, but let's try and to find the solutions and see what we can do. OK, so what are the solutions? I think solutions, there has to be three sides. There has to be prevention, awareness and a cure. Islam may say that it's unlawful to drink, but then does that mean that a person who drinks shouldn't then be helped? Of course, we, as a human being, it's our duty to help this person to save him mm -hmm. or her or get this person off something which is haram. Some people may, or some Muslims may say that by helping someone who is doing something haram, you yourself become haram because you're associating yourself with something that's bad. See, one is um, guiding someone towards good. And one is stopping someone from committing something which is forbidden, okay. even. Now, if you're stopping someone from doing uh, something which is haram, mm -hmm. or unlawful, mm -hmm. then doesn't that come under stopping someone from doing even? Okay. So the only problem would come is if that person is being encouraged by yourself to actually go one step further, okay. then I think that argument would be justified and would be right. And what happens if you pretend that such problems don't exist? What happens if you adopt a position of denial? Well, it'll just get bigger and bigger and it'll get worse. Um, then eventually either you have to move out yeah. and find somewhere where you don't have to face the problems mm -hmm. or either you may lose one or two generations on the way. Wow, OK. Now then, while drinking alcohol can certainly be avoided, it can still find its way into your system. So we have a special fatwa focus to keep you dry. 
Assalamu alaikum, my name is Zayed. Is it permissible to use alcohol in cooking? What happens if you consume alcohol by mistake? Can I use cosmetics or medical products that contain alcohol? So, those were the questions, but what are the answers? Alcohol should not be used in cooking where it mixes with the food, but it can be used as fuel. Unless it is necessary for medical reasons and there is no other alternative, products containing alcohol should be avoided because alcohol is an intoxicant and is regarded as haram. If you consume alcohol by mistake, ask Allah for forgiveness and don't do it again. Thanks to Abu Saeed from the Islamic Sharia Council of Britain for those answers. Now, throughout the show, we've been talking about what the Quran says about alcohol. But can you elaborate in more detail about why it's unlawful? Um, it didn't happen overnight. It happened gradually. Um, there was a time where uh, one of the companions of the Prophet actually went to do prayers. He was intoxicated and he'd done his prayers all wrong. So there was a revelation which came down that when you come towards close to prayer uh, in the state that you're intoxicated, do not come in that state. On another occasion, the Prophet was asked about gambling and he was asked about alcohol. And his answer to that was that there's benefits and there's harms, but the harms outweigh the benefits. So Islam looks at it from this point of view that there were some good benefits from alcohol, but because there were more harms that could be seen, so for example, a person could get drunk, go home, have an argument with his wife and say, well, I divorce you. That's a divorce. Mm. Yeah could go home, have an argument or be in a bad temper, may even become abusive. Exactly. (coughs) Yeah. So all these things were taken into consideration and say, well, actually, there's more harms. We can see more harms than benefits. Mm. So that's why alcohol became forbidden. So you're saying that at the time of, um, during the Prophet's time, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, alcohol was consumed? At at one time, yes. At one time. But it led to patterns of behaviour that were... Unpleasant and I think yeah. it's unpleasant and also which wasn't acceptable. Okay, I mean what, what we have to understand is that people, you know, they, they were known as the barbarians of that time before the Prophet came, and so there was a lot of things there which today, if we were to hear about them, we would probably get shocked. So he had to change these people, and some of the things that he saw that they were doing when they were drinking wasn't acceptable. And so taking those things into consideration, that's why it became unlawful later on. Okay, Jazakallah for that Imam. Uh-huh. Now, as part of the show, we always like to tell you what's happening elsewhere. And this week we have a press digest from our Jerusalem correspondent, Rory McCarthy. Hello, Rory. Hello there. There's never a dull moment in Palestine, is there? There certainly isn't. And there's one story that's been completely dominating the papers here for the last few days and weeks. And that's the fighting that we've all heard about in Gaza between Fatah and Hamas. More than 100 Palestinians have been killed in the last few weeks, Mm. and this has led to some serious soul-searching in the Palestinian press. What are they saying? Well, I think in the past you might have seen columnists criticising one side or the other, but what I'm beginning to see now in the last few days is this sort of general sense of frustration and anger with this violence, something we haven't really seen so much of before. I think there's a real sense of this, uh, the futility of what's going on. I mean, there's one columnist I read in a Palestinian newspaper called Al Hayat Al Jadida the other day who said tens of millions of people have started to perceive us as mere fighting gangs that are worthless and have no value. And I think that sort of sums up how people feel. They really feel this is sort of destroying the perception and the credibility of the Palestinians. So the other big story at the moment is about the Dome of the Rock. Can you tell us what's happening there? 
That's right. This is a story that's been brewing for a while. And I was at the site of the mosque this morning, and this is when the excavations have been beginning. Basically, what's going on, first of all, any excavation work in the old city of Jerusalem, particularly near the Dome of the Rock, the Haram al-Sharif, mm -hmm. is extremely controversial. And what's been going on is that there is a uh, stone walkway that leads up to one side of the Dome of the Rock. It was damaged in a storm a few years ago. A temporary wooden structure was built around the side to allow people to go up. And the Israelis have now decided that they need to replace all of this with an entirely new walkway. And this involves digging and involves excavation. Mm. And it's caused a real stir among Palestinians, even among you know, people elsewhere, the Jordanian king, King Abdullah. This is a hugely important religious site. And uh, anything that has to do with digging here is hugely important and, and often very provocative and liable to have serious repercussions. Rory, does anything positive ever come out of Palestine? Are there normal people out there? Of course there are normal people out there, and we shouldn't get too obsessed by the newspaper headlines. There's mm. one story that caught my eye a while ago about a group of rappers in Gaza. They call themselves the Palestinian rappers, and they're emerging as you know, one of the most popular, perhaps the most popular rap group in Gaza. That could be too really... hard, I would have thought. <laughs> well, they, actually, they say that there is quite a serious rap scene in Gaza, although I'd say I find that quite difficult to believe. It's a very conservative society. Mm. But you've got this group of three young men who sing quite political songs or rap quite political songs, very critical of the Israeli government. But they're quite interesting because they don't espouse violence. They say that they're angry about the situation that they're in in Gaza. They're angry about what the Israeli government has done. To but them. they don't ally themselves with a particular group. No, they say singing is better than fighting. I think that does represent what a lot of you know, ordinary people in that sort of situation do feel. All right, well, thank you very much, Rory. And thank you again to Imam Patel, especially for telling us about your valuable work with Drugsline which you can call on 0808 606 606. I'm Riaz Akbar, that was a and Jazakallah for listening. The show was produced by Francesca Panetta. The theme tune was by Aki Nawaz. Guardian Unlimited.